Welcome to Ono, oh Ross, and Carrie, the show where we don't just report on fringe science, spirituality, and claims of the paranormal, but take part ourselves. Yep, when they make the claims, we show up so you don't have to. I'm Bob Larson. And I'm Carrie. Mm. Mm. Wait. <laughs> no. Oh, I forgot. I forgot. I forgot. We're talking about Bob Larson. I'm Ross Blotcher. Sorry. Oh, you had a dissociative so moment there. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I'm Ross Blotcher. Okay. Now it makes sense. Okay. Yeah, we're both Ross Blotcher. Yes. We're reporting on Bob Larson. Okay. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. <laughs> Um, how am I? I you are well. How good. how am I? <laughs> um, I can't you are keep also this up. Good. <laughs> <laughs> it's too much, Gary. It's too much. We have multiple personalities. Okay, well, that is topical for this return to the world of Bob Larson and the International yes. School of Exorcism, hosted by the Spiritual Freedom Church. Do uh, what Jesus did. There are so many great little catchphrases and titles here. Oh, yeah. And some of them kind of confusing. So I still call things a course, and sometimes I still call them a level, and sometimes I still call them a... Uh, unit? Yeah, unit, yeah. There's uh-huh. a lot of units. Oh, goodness. Yeah, what is the true unit of measurement of this progress that we are we are making we're getting through it so that's right carrie had to remind me of this because i'd gotten the levels mixed up so the first level is the apprentice level we've taken you through that yes the second level is the warrior level and we are warriors put on the partial armor of god (laughs) yeah that's right mind your loins and then now we are ready for the third and final or is it final level of the International School of Exorcism? Or is it? Is this going to be like Scientology and they just keep adding shit? Right. A question that answers itself. But but at least the way this was originally conceived, the International School of Exorcism has three levels, and now we are on the third level. Dun-dun-dun! Which is the exorcist level. Yes, we're finally there. So you would presume if you finish this... You're an exorcist. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I was just looking at the FAQ on the website today, and it does say, because one of the frequently asked cues is, what are the benefits of completion to the exorcist level? And Mm. it says here, and I quote, Yes. Upon completion of the exorcist level, you will be certified to engage in exorcisms Based on the paradigm of deliverance you have been taught, you may be invited to establish and train DWJD deliverance teams. Yeah! So, that's where we're at. I don't want to give a spoiler or anything, but I did get to the end, so... Yes. That makes me an exorcist. And just for us to add our own layer of confusion, we will be handling this third level in part. So this is first part (laughs) of the third level. I'm confused. I hope you're confused too. <laughs> and in this one, we're going to deal with some heavy stuff. We were joking about the multiple personalities, but like yep, yep, that's yep. going to come up and it, it's ooh, it's it's a real heavy topic. Uh, mm-hmm. So we'll probably spend quite a bit of time there. I remember watching these lectures and I did finally get to a point after the first in the series that we're just about to talk about where I was just 
needing to blow through it because I was sort of fearful. We're starting to release episodes. I don't want to get booted out of the school altogether. Yeah. I, I need to just like get through the material, download the videos and all of that before I kept expecting I'd get cut off, that I'd try to log in and all of a sudden I'd see that I'd been booted out of the school. A reasonable concern. And so I would watch these sort of in the background and I'd hear him talking about multiple personality disorder, dissociative identity disorder, and, and all of these other kind of weighty psychological topics. And I thought, oh boy, this is going to be wild. And then I had to come back to it later and kind of watch through more thoroughly and take thorough notes. Yeah. But yeah, I was hearing him talk in the background. I said, whoa, Bob, you're wading into deep waters. Yeah, truly, truly. Yeah, those that's the word for it. Deep waters indeed. But we'll get there. We're going to start first with whether Christians can be possessed. Because, you know, I don't feel like... <laughs> I don't feel like we covered this quite enough Uh in the levels one and two where we heard about it nonstop. I never quite know with Bob where to draw that line of he's just stalling for time versus Mm -hmm. he actually feels it's important to unpack these concepts more. But yeah, he's made it clear multiple times at this point that yes, Christians can get demons. In fact, they are more likely to have demons. And don't forget option three, he loves to hear himself talk and is proud of, you know, the little stories he's got about the Bible and Mm -hmm. so on. Yeah, Yeah, true. And multiple times throughout even these courses we'll be talking about today, he alludes to other courses, books, videos you can find him in that unpack these more and kind of says, if you really want to understand understand this you need to read x or watch y yes so uh yeah no end to bob materials sometimes feels wise and sometimes feels like a cheat i guess we've already answered this question but let's dive in can a christian have a demon carrie (laughs) actually yes what yeah, I know. Huge shoe drop here. What? Yeah. I agree. <laughs> so this this course is called Demonization of Christians. And he starts out by admitting, and you pointed this out a couple episodes ago. I'd forgotten he said this, but that he does admit uh, when he first became involved in exorcism, he just assumed Christians couldn't have demons because that was the prevailing view. Yeah. But now he knows that was prejudicial, ill-informed, and actually Christians are a prime target. But at least Bob can say, I was wrong about this and I have some sympathy for those who do believe this because I once held that position myself. Agree, though it also opened up a whole new and lucrative revenue stream for him. (laughs) Convenient. But his explanation here I thought was very smart. I don't know if I'd heard him say this before, but just that basically, well, Christians are a prime target because non-Christians, you're already going to hell. Mm -hmm. This Like Satan's got you permanently. Right. So what's the fight there? What's that for? You know, maybe when he's done with all the Christians, he'll get to you and torture you in this life too. Yeah, it's a good point. Yeah, with the Christians, they're the place to focus your energy. And I was like, oh, shit. Yeah, okay. Okay, Bob. So, okay. So I get that from a strategic level, why Satan would want to go after Christians, right? Because they're, you know, someone he needs to win back. Yes. One thing that kept occurring to me, especially in this section, is that strategically, it seems like a really bad idea for the demon to fully manifest and say like, I hate you, go to hell. Oh, right. Pea soup. Because I'm it, right here, look at me. Right, because as soon as you do that, there's no going back. It, it, like, it's not going to work where everybody around you just says, you know what, we should leave this person alone and let the demon do their work. You know, right. Immediately it's like, we need to go into intervention mode. We need to stop this. So That's true. It seems I'll, like it's much hmm. better strategy 
strategy for the demon to lay low and yeah. do its thing as secretly as possible. Yeah, I wonder if Bob would say that's the case. Like most of the time they are laying low until mm-hmm. I come there and I provoke them intentionally and sort of get them to do that song and dance so they have to deal with me. Right, yeah, Bob so often uses the phrase, the man of God. So I right. I agree. That's probably how he'd answer it, saying like, well, just the presence of the man of God brings the demon out. Right, And he does say, I realize that a lot of this conversation often comes down to semantics. You know, Mm -hmm. what's possession versus oppression versus obsessing, etc. Right. And he does make a point here that possession is not actually used in the Bible. That phrase that Mm -hmm. the Bible talks about demonization. I would say sometimes he exacerbates that problem. But in this case, he was saying, let's try to move past that a little bit. Not get too hung up on words here. Yeah. Though he introduces something that has legitimately been a confusion and sticking point for me for years since I was a Christian. And that is the whole idea of the spirit and the soul. Yeah. Being separate and different things. And in the next lesson, he's really going to unpack this so we can save some of that discussion. But he says, if we want to get semantic about it. Uh, And we do. Yeah, I'm not (laughs) anti-semantic. He says, I agree that possession can never violate the spirit. The Christian's spirit cannot be possessed. Wait, what? Right. So later on, he's going to talk about the soul and how it's different from the spirit. And then I can talk about how that has always confused me. It's very confusing. So without getting too deep, he does think the soul can be possessed. Right. The Christian soul, but not the Christian spirit. And we'll explain that more, even though it sounds backwards to me. Oh, I'm so glad you said that. Thank you for saying that. Okay. Because the soul feels like the permanent part of... Thank you. Theoretically. Yes. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) Yes. Okay. All right. I'm going to... Yeah, I'm I'm holding off till we come to the, like, deeper... debate later but I'm so okay glad I agree with myself but thank you um, for saying that no problem Ross it's me Ross <laughs> oh yeah okay and then of course he tells us there are also biblical examples of Christians with demons we know Bob we know <laughs> but please give us some but please give us a list so that he gives us a little list uh one of the first ones he talks about is Ananias and his mm-hmm. wife Sapphira and this was always a story stellar uh, that, names y- yes Good names. This is one that always stood out to me. Like, I remember talking about Ananias and Sapphira a lot, enough that I remembered Acts 5 was the part of the Bible where the story oh, took wow. place. Because it was such a theological oddity. So the the basic story was that you had these two prominent members of the church, as was important for many members of the early church, many teachings of the early church. They had given up everything they possessed. Oh, right. Which normally we consider kind of a sign of a cult. You Being know, when a high, high control group. Yeah. yeah, exactly. When they're like, hand over all of your belongings and finance to us and we'll manage them and profit from them. And then, you know, we'll give you your basic sustenance. That was part of the model of the early church. But it turned out that when they had sold some of their real estate, their their holdings, they lied to the Holy Spirit and they actually kept some of the money. So normally you think they'd be called oh. up in front of the church and maybe chastised or convicted about this and they'd hand over the money. No. Oh, damn. Okay. They were killed, like by God. Holy shit. Yeah. Rude. Like they were just struck down, dead. That's an overreaction to someone not giving you all their stuff. Right. Even as a Christian, I remember like having to chew on that one. Like, whoa, what does that say? That they were kind of like struck by a bolt out of heaven, essentially. 
Oh Anyways, my goodness. Yeah. Very anti-prosperity gospel too. Right. Unless wow. it's the minister like Creflo Dollar or uh, who's that crazy old guy who shakes his finger at everyone? Oh, oh, Kenneth Copeland. Thank you. Kenneth Copeland is another one who's uh, <laughs> as long as you're giving all your money to him, then he'll tell you you're doing right by God. But yeah, right, you're right. You're right. Otherwise, it's very <sighs> anti-prosperity gospel. So Bob kind of jumps aside from that whole theological quandary and just points to a phrase that says that Satan had filled their hearts when they're being countered by the other brethren. They're told, Satan has filled your heart. And so Mm. for Bob, that was enough for him to say, aha, this was an example of possession. Though, why didn't they use deliverance and just heal them from this possession rather than just letting God kill these people? Oh, good point, good point. Yeah, I would think that that was a metaphorical filled your heart, like you have turned away. Bob's never one to let a few words go to waste when he can interpret them within his framework. (laughs) Sure. The other two scriptural examples he gave for this were in Luke 13, there was a woman who was called a daughter of Abraham who had been kept bound for 18 years by Satan. Jesus cast out her demon. And then also, this was an interesting example from Matthew 16, Jesus had an interaction with Peter, uh, which funny enough was just a few verses after he named him Peter and said, because you are my rock. Then a few verses later, after Jesus talks about needing to suffer the crucifixion, uh, not in those terms, but you know, like I'm going to need to be delivered over and die. Peter says, no, surely this will not happen. And Jesus spins around and turns to him and says like, get thee behind me, Satan. And that's always seemed like a really weird reaction. Like, whoa, whoa, you just said this is like, you know, he's your rock. Yeah. And he's just sad that you're going to die. Right. He's just trying to say, yeah, we're not going to let this happen. You're not going to die. And all of a sudden you're calling him Satan. What? Yeah. And I thought Bob actually brought up a really good point here because he said it was kind of exactly what Satan had been telling Jesus in the desert and that this Mm. kind of points to Peter having maybe his own possession that just kind of momentarily flashed up and that's why Jesus rebuked him. So I thought that was kind of a cool take on that story. Yeah, yeah. Creative anyway. Uh, The easiest explanation for me there is like Jesus was hard to hang out with. (laughs) Right. Yeah. It's like, you know, you might be a fig tree. You might be his closest disciple. He could turn on you. He can flip over your tables and flog you. Yeah. Well, tell me, Carrie, how do these demons enter? Well, if you're a Christian, there are three ways. There's your ancestors. Mm. Now, of course, that's for non-believers, too. And the one we hear about the most. So the demons might have this legal right to your bloodline. Even though you were born again, the soul still hasn't been given over to Jesus completely and you're still carrying sort of these epigenetic markers of possession. Yeah, the combination with genetic language is really weird to me. Yeah, though I totally see why he thinks that epigenetics proves him right. Mm -hmm. Okay, then there's abusers. Mm -hmm. We've commented on this in many episodes past, but this idea that victims of trauma, victims of abuse, if they didn't get the proper like psychological help or didn't go to church and they're still like harboring this trauma and this pain from what happened to them, then they become angry and then that becomes how the demon has the right to enter. Which is weird because I don't think I've ever heard Bob say, or you might have abused someone and you have a demon from that. You'd think, you'd think, but nope, that's not how it happens. Because for every abusee, 
there's often a, an abuser. Right. Yeah. And, or or 17, you know, because there's the cycle of abused. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways. And then actions. So this is where probably before you became a Christian, you were partaking in, in really serious sin. So not just the usual stuff, you guys. We're talking occult involvement, like me and Ross, or <laughs> criminal violence, or the healer's drug addiction. And he says that can leave, I love this phrase, spiritual scar tissue on the soul. Ooh, yeah. What shocked me here was that Bob said, in almost all cases, the demons were present before the person was born. Oh, okay. Well, that just means then that they're all bloodline curses. Yeah. So I guess he's saying like the other two are less likely or they're incidental. I don't know. But Hmm. it just it introduces this whole kind of, um, I don't know, like the Oedipus story of like, how much can you avoid your fate? You know, you're just sort of Mm -hmm. saddled with it. It wasn't even your decision before you were born. You already had these demons. Yeah, also it seems like then that makes the other two more of symptoms than causes. Mm, Like mm -hmm. maybe... Oh, see, yeah, then that would mean you kind of provoke abuse upon you by having this spirit already inside you. Yeah, they're just amplifiers or intensifiers of a pre-existing problem, maybe. Right. Or maybe even part and parcel of why you got abused in the first place? Yeah, that's how I'm interpreting it. That, like, the demon was already there, and now that's what made you get abused. But uh, who knows? Who knows what he means? None of these really make sense. (laughs) Um. But, yeah, Bob wants us to know that the demons cannot possess the spirit of a believer. He has a couple scriptural supports for this. I feel like a lot of the scriptural support gets super thin around here. Uh, Like, he points to 2 Corinthians 6. 614, be ye not unequally yoked together. What communion oh, yeah. hath light with darkness? That's what, what? Christ- that's what Christians use to like discourage you from marrying someone who's not another Christian. Yeah. And he's trying to pull that phrase, what communion hath light with darkness, to somehow metaphorically make some big point about how a demon cannot possess your spirit. Specifically your spirit, but can possess your soul. Yeah, I am not buying that. (sighs) Yeah, me neither. And then he points to uh, a passage in 1 Thessalonians 5. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's a little bit of his whole soul, spirit, body thing that we'll talk more about. Goodness. Uh, And then there's something else a demon can't do to a Christian. He can't control the will of a believer. Yeah, interesting. So no matter what you did before salvation, even if the devil still has like 99% of of your life, you have that 1% of willpower left. And you can resist if you want to badly enough. Yeah, that 1% is more powerful than any demonic oppression. Yeah. Okay. Which I, I, yeah, I kind of get, and then I kind of don't. I'm like, I mean, so, so, so someone during a possession who's like spitting at you and kicking, could they just stop if they wanted to? And if so, should they? <laughs> right. Theoretically, they they can if they kind of build up the willpower, I guess. Yeah. But I I assume in in the case of one of Bob's interventions, he kind of wants this whole thing to play out. So. Oh, definitely. Definitely. He's not not encouraging them to push back then and there until later when he has them kind of read through his script to send the demon to hell. Oh, for sure. But I'm sort of asking, I guess I'm asking him in my mind. But why? Why, Bob? Why not just say, (laughs) okay, well, actually, you can control your body. So let's go ahead and do the exorcism, but hold still, okay? Mm. Mm. You know, and save all your assistants from getting kicked in the nose. (laughs) 
you know? Good point. Less theatrical, but more practical. Yes, exactly. I think that's the key, Blotcher. I'm so smart. I'm Ross. I I feel like that's just kind of weird and disingenuous saying that these spirits, these demons cannot control your will. Because it's like, well, then what's the problem? Obviously. (laughs) Yeah, really. Obviously, they've been having an influence. And I think that's the the little subtle point he tries to make is that they influence you. Right. He's trying to make it a little more like uh, being on drugs or something. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Increasing power over you, but never total. So then Bob tries to lay out all those things that Satan can do. He can afflict the body through physical torment and give some scripture for that. And they can function through your human faculties, which I think basically means your five senses. Mm-hmm. Like you can start to hear things, see things. Yeah, exactly. Or the more active stuff, you know, can make you say things or control your body movements. Again, mm-hmm. confusing with what we just went over, but uh, have, has some influence over those things. And here Bob highlights the words of some critics who say things like, well, mm-hmm. exorcism is a miracle. And thus, because it's miraculous, it hasn't been possible since the apostolic age. So you can't do anything about it. And Bob feels that that's just, well, defeatist and wrong. So for people who didn't grow up in the church, there's this concept that there was a time when God did miracles and he kind of needed to prove himself at that point. No one knew what is God. And Mm -hmm. um, so this was his way of like making sure the idea of God saturated throughout the world. Then now that we have the Bible and we have churches and so on, that's not necessary. And in fact, it's more noble to believe without those things. So so we don't have miracles anymore. Exactly. saying, no, 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 that's garbage. That's the uh, cessationist philosophy. Ooh, I kind of like this idea. It's cessationist versus sensationalist. Ooh, I like that too. Mm. Also, people will say no one can have a demon if they're saved. Mm. Boy, we know how Bob feels about that. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And it's interesting. He flips that around and he says, it's nearly impossible to drive a demon out of someone who's not a Christian. Yeah. Because they have to come from a place of faith. And that's where he points to the Syrophoenician woman. I think we've talked about her earlier in the series. Uh, But she was a woman who was, you know, not a Jew. And Christ first needed to ascertain that she really believed in him. And then once she was in a position of faith, he could heal her daughter. And this makes sense to me. You know, it's like, how do you kick someone off a property that you don't own, right? His his case here is like, well, the way that I get the demon out is I say, Christ died for this man. If you haven't accepted that Christ died for you, what power is that going to have over you? I mean, yeah, that is a fair point. We need to be, you know, like the Scientologists would say, we need a shared reality if we're going to have affinity and communication. <laughs> exactly. That Get that triangle going. <laughs> he also takes on people who say that if you have demons, all you need to do is just bring the person to Christ and then automatically all of their demons will be dealt with. That the act of yeah. salvation. And he's like, that's clearly not true because I have people come to me who were just Christians and they still have the demons. Right. And he says there can definitely be a cleansing that happens, but it's not always thorough. There can still be demons that kind of hang on past that process. And I like that he said it was not demonstrably true because I was like, oh, demonstrably. (laughs) (laughs) I also love that Bob like doesn't see this self-fulfilling feedback loop he's created where 
he puts out there like, come to this exorcism and people come and then they act possessed and then he's gathering this like mental data. Oh, okay. So even if you were just saved, you still can be possessed. Okay. And then like adds that to his database. It's like, these were just people who showed up at your show, sir. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. and, And he's talking about how like, these demons can still be hiding in unsanctified parts of a person's soul. So not only is somehow the, shower. the spirit separate from the soul, but the soul has parts. Yeah, like a hotel. Yeah, or a horcrux, you know, like in, in Harry Potter. You know, like you can split <laughs> up a soul and have it be in different places. It's like, what? What are you implying, Bob? It's so complex. So Bob also emphasizes that, you know, Christians still lie and commit adultery and curse and do all kinds of horrible things so obviously you believe that like once you're saved that doesn't immunize you from every bad act right and you can't blame he says you can't blame all of that on the flesh which again we'll get into but the flesh is a different component that's a whole other thing (laughs) that's right Uh, uh, don't don't get me started on the mind. I know. I was thinking that later too. Yeah. Oh a, goodness. There's a. You know what this is perfect for? Jerry Mungazi to color. We need a Oh no, there's also the brain Yeah, exactly, coloring book of the human body Where there's the soul and the spirit And the mind and the flesh And then the brain has just like all these different sections Yeah, but apparently the soul does too It's like a whole hotel Yeah, yeah, exactly Oh Uh, goodness Yeah, this Gordian knot, you know You have to like slowly disentangle it Before you can make any progress on it And it just keeps getting bigger and more wrangled If someone makes that coloring sheet Tweet it at us. We'll we'll tweet it out. People can print it. (laughs) Anyway, his conclusion is basically, believe it or not, (laughs) Christians can be (laughs) can be possessed, and more than ever, exorcism is needed because oh my goodness, things are getting worse and worse. And sure, exorcism was needed in the time of Christ, but why not now? Uh, Satan's had over two thousand more years to kill people and steal things and destroy nations. And, uh, you know, you'd you'd have to be very short-sighted and blind to the problems of the world to think that we don't need it now. Yeah, on a broader level, I feel like Bob really relies upon this idea that everything's getting worse all the time, that Mm -hmm. Satan's activities are ramping up, and he needs sort of this logarithmic projection of bad and satanic activity. (gasps) I'm going to send Bob factfulness! Yes, exactly! He should read factfulness! I I actually, I keep extra copies of factfulness in my gift drawer for when a birthday sneaks up on me. I'm going to send him factfulness. Oh my goodness, that's amazing. Do it, yeah. Um, I mean, because another option would be like the better angels of our nature, but that's a much bigger read. But yes, definitely, the world is still filled with horrible miscarriages of justice. We need to actively fight against all of them. But over time, and this is an encouraging thing, our moves towards democratization, towards healthcare, you know, all of these little pieces of progress that we've made collectively as a society do add up over time and do have a beneficial effect. If they didn't, then what's the whole point? Mm-hmm. And and so I, I feel like he's using this availability bias of newspaper headlines and yeah. six yeah. o'clock news to drive the sense of urgency that Satan's amping up 
and ramping up his uh, activities. Yeah, and this is something I have to remind myself of all the time because God, like you can just spend the whole day being aware of bad things happening in the world. Mm -hmm. But what you're really doing is short circuiting your brain because like your brain is built to be like, well, what most urgent thing that I can affect is mm -hmm. needing my help right now. Oh, right. that lady fell in a fountain and she's right next to me. I'm going to help her, right? But if you amplify things from around the world, your brain becomes just overwhelmed and right. everything comes in at the same volume and you can lose complete scale of what you can actually affect change in. Right. And yeah, our minds are not built for handling this well. It works in a few different ways. Like, you know, you hear that maxim that one death is a tragedy and a thousand deaths is a statistic. Mm -hmm. You know, like we just our brains don't properly ramp up and down our level of concern about these things. Like right now, my head is filled with things that I need to accomplish this weekend. But if suddenly the kitchen sink started overflowing and filling the house, that would be my number one concern. I'd forget about all those other things. Right, right. <clears throat> or if Kara got COVID. Like, yes. Oh, but oh then God. then I want to care about the kitchen sink. At all. And, and these things that we think of as very important, you know, getting this episode out this week, we have to do it. We'd suddenly just be like, Hey, Max Fun, we can't get this out this week. And right. we'd realize that's not a big deal. <laughs> and then the but, wonderful people at Max Fun would flex for us. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so on to level three, course two. Yeah, I think we've earned it. Okay, so this is Inner Healing Basics, which sounds like it's going to be very new age. Yeah, yeah. I like, I'm expecting like the healing. groovy music, put on some incense sticks. Inner Healing. Yeah. Ooh, I have been very into the Austin Powers theme song lately. <laughs> um, I know that doesn't really apply. For yeah, like how is this connected? But that's what's going through my head right now. Okay. Uh, Drew will tell you I sing it every day, no matter what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> it's not annoying because I don't live with you. <laughs> no, he, he thinks it's cute. So. Oh, good. Okay. <laughs> well, that's why Drew is uh, the right guy for you. <laughs> well, he has his own song Okay. that I call the house song. So when he's just like doing stuff around the house, he goes, ba 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 he just does that as he's doing basically anything. So okay. I call it the house song. That's so adorable. He's going. Okay. So, um, <laughs> uh, inner healing. Listen, if you've been watching all these Hollywood movies like The Exorcist or The Exorcism of Emily Rose or some other movie with the word exorcism in the title, mm -hmm. you don't see. That half of this work is inner healing work. It's not all the flashy stuff. It's not all the vomiting and right. uh, throwing your limbs around and uh, someone throwing a cross into your chest. You need supernatural remediation in the deep wounds of your soul, Ross. Oh, me? Yes, you okay. and and everyone. Okay. Yeah, and uh, Bob has this phrase that he says he didn't coin, but he really likes. He says, we need to go to the point of pain. Yes, this made me think of Scientology. You're right. It made me think of Scientology, and then it also made me think of the Princess Bride. Because, okay. <laughs> uh, because at the end, you have Wesley and Humperdinck, and he says, I know, I know, to the death. And Wesley says, no, to the point of pain. Oh, okay. Oh, exactly then. Or to the pain, actually. I, I don't think points oh, okay. in there. But you get the point. But yeah, in Scientology, they say, uh, find your ruin, which is like the thing that's just the negative thing that has some control over your life and is going to be the thing that gets you to join Scientology because you're going to want to fix that thing. Right. Getting to that like base engram that all the others are tied to and and also teal swan 
This is her mm-hmm. own kind of like modified cognitive behavioral therapy thing where she also tries to hone in on what is that root cause or issue that we need to get what to. What is the bud of the bud? And I can do it within the span of a three-minute conversation because I'm Teal Swan. Yeah, so the wooier this gets, the more people start to say there's one experience you had that might have been even before you were, while well, you were in utero, you mm-hmm. had some traumatic experience. Right, or even past lives. Throughout your life. Right, right. Or maybe with Bob's theology, maybe it's something your grandpa did. I don't know. But that's going to be the point of pain for you. And what's great about his method is that inner healing does what no psychological intervention can accomplish, Hmm. which yikes, because he's going to be dealing with some serious psychological issues. Yeah. But it can remediate. As if nothing ever happened. Yeah. It can correct the problem that led to possession as if it had never happened. Hmm. That's a bold claim. That stood out to me, too, because I was like, but you see people multiple times. Right? And you've told us that the same demon can come back in the same person. Yes, which he he does get to later. So I feel like he's carved out a little way that both of those are true. But I agree with you just on the the whole of it that an encounter with Bob Larson, the way he's kind of selling it, getting to that earliest point of pain will completely heal you to the point where right. you know you don't need any more intervention. So maybe may- it's like being clear though where he's like he's sort of uh not saying how long this will take. Like, well, yeah, but you're not inner healed until you've been you've spent 75 sessions with me. Right. Or he's saying, well, maybe you haven't been fully honest with me or maybe you weren't even mm. aware of that earliest moment. Maybe you've hidden it. Oh, Uh, we'll get there. Which we'll get to. So here's where Bob starts to really break into his whole, the difference between spirit and soul thing. This is a theological debate that's been had over centuries um, mm-hmm. since the beginning of the church. And so he says that the Bible speaks. Is that di- true? I, or is that Bob speaking? It's true. It's actually, okay. it's very true. And it's not just Bob speaking, but Bob has a very specific vantage point on this, which is that the scriptures are all in accord and that all of the biblical authors, if you could line them up in a room together, you know, all 48 of them or however many people wrote the Bible. That was a number. Ross pulled. just got three emails right now. I know that was the number pulled out of my butt. Um, <laughs> I know there's lots of debates over who wrote what, but some authors wrote multiple books. Anyways. Actually, there's just one author, Ross. Oh, uh, yes. Okay. So God. for Bob, of course, all scripture was inspired by the Holy and Spirit. That is mm-hmm. kind of the Christian perspective. But I've, I've always thought of it this way, that like if you did pull all of those authors together and somehow excluded the ones who wrote all of the little ancillary books, you know, we forget about them for now, the ones that didn't make it into the canon. The Christian belief is that they would all just magically agree with each other on all of these important theological issues. I think that is an absurd claim. (laughs) So taking a stand here. But for Bob, whenever he sees one piece of scripture and it says something, he has to make that consistent with every other little weird phrase you can pull out of any other piece of scripture. And anything he's already said in interpretation of said scripture B. Right. And so then we have to introduce methods by which we downplay certain other phrases that don't fit as well with the interpretation that we've committed ourselves to or to sort of reinterpret them or make them within the context of just one event. There's like a whole a tool bag of mechanisms to deal with this and make the scripture be 
consistent. Yeah. And we've seen this with Amazing Facts. We've seen this with many other groups. But all of it has to do with like scriptural exegesis and finding ways to, you know, when you don't like the wording of something, to dig into the original language and flip it around and make it do what you want it to. Find a way the Bible's on your side. Yeah. And and I want to pimp a book I just read uh, that I loved so much. I wish I could have read it earlier. Uh, Bart Ehrman's latest is a book called Heaven and Hell. Oh, okay. And it's all about the origins of the ideas of heaven and hell. Oh, okay. Obviously, he's not saying that heaven and hell themselves have changed over time, but the religious and scriptural understanding of those concepts have. And That's cool. And this, these have been some of my favorite talking points for years, and he combines them so well going from earlier polytheistic religions into the time of the writing of the the Hebrew Bible, which is kind of a late arrival to these concepts, through to um, a really crucial and important period that gets kind of skipped over, which is sort of the intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, including Daniel, which I'm going to, okay, I, I want to get into it, but I won't. And then into the New Testament and the early Christian fathers. Anyways, Bart Ehrman is, you know, really great writer. Writer and a great scholar, and he does a really good job of giving the history of these ideas. And he's talking in detail about exactly what we're about to get into, which is the nature of the soul and the spirit and the body and the flesh and how these things are different and the same, um, depending on who you're talking to and when. So I can't recommend Bart, that book. Bart Ehrman is a biblical historian. Uh, yes. And what's, what's the book called? Heaven and Hell. I'm going to put it on our bookshop. Oh, yeah. Um, I've been trying to put every book we mention on this show on our bookshop list. So go look at it, everybody. Yeah, bookshop.org slash shop slash oh, no. Okay, so now that we've now that we've established that yes, this is a matter of debate. It's also, as I said, something that has been personally irking to me over the years because I've sensed all of these different theological viewpoints, even within the Christian church, about what a soul is, what a spirit is, mm-hmm. and how all this ties together into salvation and the end times and resurrection and stuff like that. Yeah, it's definitely confusing because my intuitive sense of what a soul is is just my inner experience, the whole subjective experience of being inside this body. Okay. But... Other ways people have talked about the soul have made me think, okay, that can't be it. Because I'll still hear about, well, of course, when you die, your consciousness ceases. And I'm like, oh, what's a soul uh-huh. then? What? Yeah, yeah. That's what I thought the whole deal was. Yeah, brief version of my history with this concept was that, like you, I've always considered soul to be sort of the deeper word that mm-hmm. is like the more eternal component And over time, I've sort of taken spirit to be the animating principle, Mm, mm -hmm. you know, that breath of life. And maybe that's sort of what bridges that connection between soul and body. And I remember as a Christian, that was kind of my operating assumption. I remember as a kid going to see Pocahontas and she would sing every rock, every tree, you know, every creature has a life, has a spirit, spirit has a name. has a name. Thank you, Vanessa Williams. Um, and so I remember I would like watching that in the theater. I'd be like, wait, is that true? No, that's, <laughs> that's animism, but spirit, okay, maybe that does work because maybe not a rock and a tree and a creature has a soul, but it may have a spirit. So and that's okay. And, you know, and it wasn't just based on the movie Pocahontas, but these are sort of the thoughts going on in my head. And I got to a point where I thought, well, animals have spirits, but they don't have souls. And that was kind of my way of 
resolving that maybe not all dogs go to heaven, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, right. I know we had different opinions on that. Uh, uh, the movie and the... Yeah. <laughs> and the theological <laughs> concept, right. Um, so, I love Don Bluth. I love him. So anyway, yeah, that's just to lay the background where I've always had an issue with how people interpret these terms. And then in our investigations, we've run into people who kind of flop those and treat spirit mm-hmm. as the basic incorruptible thing, as Bob is doing here. And the soul being something kind of lesser or more yeah, of a hanger on. That's really interesting. So wait, let me just give you my quick background here. Yeah. So I would have said, I think I always would have said spirit and soul, those are basically synonyms. Mm, but mm-hmm. if you had said, no, actually, they're two different things. And what's your intuition? Which one would be more permanent? Mm. I would definitely have said soul. That just felt, that just feels like the the definite core. Yeah. The thing that I'm trying to save. Now a movie from Pixar. Speaking of animated <laughs> yes, films. True. Not not to um, get spirited away or anything. <laughs> uh, Soul's very good. I watched it. I've also seen Spirited Away. Also very good. Uh, where am I going with this? Oh, when I was a kid, though, my mom loves to tell this story, if you can even call it a story, because apparently it happened all the time, that I would always say everything has a spirit. And she's mm. like, I don't know where she got this. We didn't teach it to her. Hmm. But like, if you slammed down a chair, Carrie would sort of tear up and be like, don't do, oh, everything has a spirit. Be nice to the chair. <laughs> and like, really, and um, oh my God, stuffed animals were like, Jesus Christ, I really, really believed they were, like, real. Oh, wow. Like, they had personalities inside of them. And so when I was asked to, like, pare down my many, many stuffed animals, I would just cry and cry. Oh, yeah, because you're making me abandon someone. You're hurting them, and it's hurting you, which is why you enjoy Toy Story so much. Probably part of it. I'm sorry, I'm just making animated film references. Oh, I see, I see. (laughs) But I do love Toy Story. Well, I love Toy Story 2 the most. It goes two, one, three, four. Okay. Uh Hot take. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Where are we? What are we talking about? (laughs) Okay. So we are talking about the dichotomous and the trichotomous (laughs) views of the soul. See, now you're caught up, listener. Okay, so listen, there are two perspectives on how we get our souls. Now, I know what you're thinking, uh, listener, you're thinking, well, me, I'm a traditionist. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The traditionist is the one who thinks that the soul and the body come from a person's parents. Um, And guess what, traditionist, you're right. That's the one Bob believes too. But that explains why you can inherit family traits, but you can also inherit generational curses and like weird uh, personality quirks of your parents. Yeah, and Bob makes a particular scriptural reference that I did not remember that I think is totally fun and I'm going to hold on to from now. He says that in the Bible, it even refers to someone kind of existing within the loins of their father. And so Mm. I looked up that phrase and sure enough, in Hebrews 7.10, it says, for he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. And Mm. so That's really interesting because it makes me think of those old illustrations before they knew about how genetic inheritance worked, where you'd have like a little picture of a sperm with like a little homunculus sort of wrapped up inside of it as like the early proto-human being. Mm -hmm, And the Bible's mm -hmm. kind of supporting that there. He's saying like, oh yeah, Melchizedek met this guy 
when he was still inside the little sperm in the loins of his father. Yeah, that's interesting that it would be in the loins of his father and not the egg in the mother. Unprotected by his armor of God. But yeah, you're right. Then what what use is the mother in all this? And why do kids look like their mothers and act like their mothers? Right, right. Um, Of course, we're using the very basic terminology of mother and father here, egg bearer and sperm bearer, but... Yeah, yeah, that seems uh, to erase an important part of the calculation. Anyways, I just thought that was weird. But yeah, Bob is pulling out little scriptural references everywhere. And like I said, I don't believe if you pulled all of the scriptural authors together that they would easily find agreement on any of these issues. Oh my God, like three people would leave that room alive. Right, right. They would bicker and complain and separate just like, you know, Christians have throughout the ages. Well, It would be like The Bachelor. I want to see this show, actually. This would be be fun. Oh my God, it's so good. (laughs) Oh no, not The Bachelor. I have no interest in that. Sorry. (laughs) <laughs> this hypothetical show <laughs> with uh, with all of these biblical authors. That would have a much lower viewership than The Bachelor, I'm sure. I don't know. But I'll tell you what. I'll tell you who would be the house villain, John. People would be like, John will not shut the fuck up. He thinks he has all these freaking visions. Mm. He thinks he has all oh, this Oh, John insight. the Revelator. Yeah, yes. yes. You're not... Okay, listen. Okay, you're not some freaking better than all of us <laughs> just because you took shrooms the one time, okay? Oh, and I bet if you saw him in person, he'd be like the crazy one, you know, like foaming uh-huh. at the mouth or be like, oh, he's not right. Something's wrong with him. Yeah, possible. Now I want to write some historical fan fiction about this, but... <laughs> Anyway, so so Bob just kind of willy-nilly grabs little tiny pieces of scripture, like a phrase, may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless. Aha, that supports what I'm saying. Or my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. So he's like, aha, those are separate things. When that just reads as like Hebrew parallelism, the poetry where you sort of say one thing and then you say it in a slightly different way. Anyways, uh I, I I won't trot out all the verses he trots out, but I feel like Bob is being super selective and interpretive. In yeah, and section. and these don't so much support you, Bob, as don't stand in your way. Mm-hmm. You're like, you're showing me parts of the Bible that are like, see, this could match, instead of like, this makes my theory more relevant than other ways you can interpret this. And I'm sure, I, I haven't gone about trying to even think about this, but I'm sure we could pull out other pieces of scripture and say, this sure doesn't sound like what you're describing. Yeah, And, and then probably. he would have some way of either just responding with more scripture or reinterpreting it. Yeah, I will say this. I think Bob spends a lot of time in the word. Okay, so what is the soul? Here's the here's the guts and glue. Okay, so the soul is the seat of our feelings, emotions, desires, affections, and aversions. Mm-hmm. And it's the immaterial, sentient part of all humans. So again, to me, this does sound like my version of soul, that just that subjective human experience. Yeah. The sentient part of each person, the driving force, and it arouses emotion and sentiment. And then he says, oh, a lot of times we just call this the personality, mm-hmm. which is interesting. I think of personality more as like uh, the way other people see you. Yeah. And then, and then Bob defines the spirit as, and again, this is kind of what I would have said before, the animating principle giving life, the source of immaterial intelligence and the spiritually immortal aspect of each individual identity. Spirit is eternal and the God created part. So... Again, I, I don't know if any of this is helping clear things up for me, but at least I'm getting a better <laughs> sense of where Bob's at on it. You talked about traducianism. That's the idea that these pieces 
come from the parents, whereas there's soul creationism. That was the other thing he was contrasting it with, which is where God creates every soul ex nihilo as a fresh new creation that he then kind of sends, you know, like a stork would into uh, the body that's created, which seems to be where most modern Christians are. Wrong. And it, it seems like maybe here Bob is kind of saying that the soul comes through the body, the loins, what have you, and then the spirit gets added as kind of that God-created component. Mm, oh, maybe. 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 I know there's a lot of Christians who believe you don't get your spirit or soul until your first breath, that once you exit the womb and you go, <gasps> that's when. So maybe the fetus has a soul, but not yet a spirit. Exactly. <laughs> okay. Guess. And what have we solved here? I don't know. <laughs> So the spirit is also, by the way, where that Holy Spirit lives if you've been saved Mm. Um, and where it speaks to you. uh, You hear about the peace that surpasses all understanding that lives in your spirit if you're a Christian. I feel like if any Christian had a really solid understanding of how these subparts operate and split duties, I bet we'd have like a lot of really good diagrams spelling it out. And the fact that Mm -hmm. we don't tells us that no one's really solved this in any clear manner. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, good point. He points to St. Augustine, you know, one of the founding thinkers of the early church, as seeing the body as trichotomous, so body, soul, and spirit. And and so he feels that's kind of the older and more correct view, as opposed to the majority opinion of the Roman Catholic Church, and now, by succession, most of the Protestant Church, seeing it as dichotomous. Okay, so when do you need inner healing? There's probably like five signs that you need it. Yeah, that sounds right. So the first is for the person receiving the ministry, nothing ever seems to get fixed for them. You know, mm. they keep coming back. They're they're still like wallowing in it. They're still going to therapy and have the same complaints after years of it. I don't know. Maybe I'd introduce a number two there. Maybe portions of their memory may be missing. Uh-oh, red flag. Uh-oh, red flag. <laughs> yeah. Uh-oh, uh-oh. Oh, no, no, no. Where are we going with this? Okay, so listen, screeching this podcast to a stop. This has been very much on my mind lately because uh, I've been in a public fight with New York Magazine about it. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) It's a whole long thing, but maybe go check my Twitter. (laughs) Carrie wrote an excellent letter to the editor that did not get published, so she self-published it. It got joined in by a lot of others, and it's very well written. So, Oh, thank you. Check it out. Yeah, they had done some, in my opinion, very poor reporting on this issue. But um, listen, portions of everyone's memory are missing. You don't remember your entire life or else it would be a Scientology time track. Yeah. And you'd be probably tormented by it. How would you tell signal from noise ever? So, yeah, I mean, our memories atrophy over time. But there is this point of view that Freud popularized that if you are missing memories from parts of your life if you're like i don't really remember being eight that this is a sign of trauma that you should unearth in that portion of your life Mm -hmm. and what that really ends up doing is inviting people to imagine what might have happened when they were eight and our brains are so good at this and the process of memory is basically the same process as imagination so if you tell yourself that something is missing and you need to go find it you will probably come up with some visions, some storylines that might be true. They might be. It might be something that you, quote unquote, forgot, meaning you just haven't thought about it in a long time and now you are again. Or you could be inventing it. And 
going down that road becomes really problematic and it has destroyed people's lives. Mm -hmm. So when I see this, I go, oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> Where are we going? And in fact, with Bob, we will be going there. Yeah. And we've we brought this up in previous episodes because this comes up with Scientology and auditing. You're playing these exercises where you imagine, well, what would it look like? Just tell me what you see in the room, you know, what colors. And so then you start populating your memory with these additional details. And once recovered or created, it feels indistinguishable from the rest of the memory. And you've kind yep. of changed it. Yep. Same with teal swans, same with a lot of other things that we've talked about. And we know this is a hot button issue for a lot of people. And we've heard a lot of listener feedback about this. So mm -hmm. anyways, I think that was a good summary, Carrie. Thank you. And we'll get into that more in the levels that come. So, okay. Number three reason you need inner healing. Relationships are difficult or dysfunctional with constant bad decisions. Yeah, interesting. Okay. Uh, number four, repetitive self-abusive behavior. Sure. Okay. And five, what he calls a collective soul stain. Oh, <laughs> beautiful. Um, that has infected other family members. Yeah. So the kind of thing that he would apply to Biden, but strangely not to Trump. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> and then, and he also says the collective soul stain might be on a sibling or parent who has also been uh, the victim of incest or molestation. I'm not sure there if he's saying that the person who abused might also have the stain. Maybe he's finally making that point. Mm. Or if he's saying your soul stain is spreading onto them somehow. I'm not sure what he was trying to say there. But the important thing is that he is not referencing the popular 90s band Collective Soul. True, true. Okay, so how do you minister inner healing, Ross? Uh, well, first, you got to probe. So you need people to share. You want to you get them to talk about their deepest, darkest memories and even relive them and go back to them. So Bob Whoa, okay. Oh, no. Red flag. <laughs> yeah. Red flag. For sure. And- <laughs> And Bob says, you know, this isn't always easy. And sometimes people will say, I've dealt with it. And you have to kind of get them to say, all right, but this is still playing a role. I'm going to make this reinfect you. How can I make this still traumatic for you? Mm hmm. Yeah. But yeah, that's that's where it starts for him. Yeah. Yeah. So he says, um, he actually says, take the person receiving ministry to the point of pain. And then he says, this is a quote, the most repressed, sometimes forgotten trauma. Yeah. So that's you leading them and saying, like, let me help you remember. That's really bad. That's very bad. Right. And this is where various practitioners, there's a general term, will say, oh, no, 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 I didn't lead them at all. I just said, mm -hmm. you know, like, tell me what happened. But the leading can be very, very subtle. And just the act mm -hmm. of saying it's here and you need to find it mm -hmm. is a lead. Yeah, yeah. It's enough to make your mind just start throwing images at you and then you try to make those images real. So yeah, he wants to get you there, have you reliving it. A another component of the inner healing is unconditional forgiveness and release. And this is another really tricky area, you know, where you're telling people, well, you got to forgive your abusers. You've got to mm -hmm. forgive people who did horrible things to you. At least he acknowledges that's not easy to do. And he'll often lead people to say, by faith, the best that I can forgive I forgive so-and-so. Mm -hmm. uh, but then this sounded weird to me. He said that he'll maybe even take on being that person for them, which seems really weird for oh, you wow. 
as the Person practitioner ministry. Oh, oh, as the practitioner, yeah. For you, oh to, yeah, because you have to like act out this asshole. Yeah, like right, like I'm Harvey Weinstein now, you oh, know, right. and I oh, need God. you to talk to me. Like, I, is that oh, a good God. idea? Yeah, I don't, I don't even want to do that. Talks about Harvey Weinstein. Yeah, yeah, and then like, okay, now I'm <laughs> Bob again, and I care about you. Um, yeah, that that seems weird. And he says I'll especially do that if it's a male, and if it's a female, maybe mm. sometimes I'll grab someone from the ministry if they're available who's a woman and have her mm. play act as the aggressor oh how fun for everybody yeah as a, uh, as a proxy role yeah n- none of that sounded too particularly healthy to me no also i i feel as someone who's you know I, I not that i'm special this way but like as someone who has had people that like really hurt me at some points and then eventually was able to forgive them that process partly took things totally beyond my control like just time like letting time yeah. pass and not repeatedly digging it up like i feel like if i had just continually ruminated on what happened i would probably always stay there not and i thought about it a lot but like yeah. having someone else tell you where you should be in that process yes is probably just going to murky the waters yeah forgiveness is a good thing it's a healing thing it's advisable but you can't put someone there and and just telling mm-hmm. them, like, you need to forgive <laughs> is, I think, counterproductive. Yeah. And then when they finally get there three years later, because their memories have atrophied a, a little bit, thank God, hmm. um, then, you know, you can point to them and say, see, that's what you always had to do from step one. It's like, no, dude, this was this was it, step. It's 35. a process. Yeah, yeah, you need a process. All right, anyway. Bob introduces something that you see often. If you watch one of Bob's exorcisms, there's a good chance you'll see him grab a Bible and actually like hit a person with it. Yeah. And when he does it, he'll invoke Hebrews 4.12. Which says, put this in someone's breast. <laughs> yeah, it says like the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. I remember that all the time. We said that all yep. the time in Christian school as we'd be doing our Bible drills and in Sunday school. Um, but it also says... Piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. Yes, that explains why he always does that. Right. You know, he holds up the Bible in front of you and he does almost a mark of the cross, it looks like. But I guess he he's just splitting those two things and says, I divide the soul and spirit. I've seen him kind of bring it down on someone's head, but more commonly like kind of hit their lower back with it. Mm-hmm. And he'll say, yeah, I'm going to divide soul and spirit. So he explains here what he's doing in that moment. He's setting apart the spirit, that good, uncorruptible part. He's setting that aside so he can face the damaged soul. Because mm-hmm. otherwise he would hurt the spirit. Right. Yeah. What damage? I guess it just simplifies things. It kind of zooms in on the problem and area. Actually, but wait, if the Holy Spirit is in the spirit, you'd think you'd want his help. Oh, yeah. interesting. Didn't think of it that way. Don't you want the Holy Spirit in the room? Yeah. Well, I'm sure him separating the Spirit doesn't remove the Spirit's uh, ability to help out. But that's a that's an interesting. I guess I'm asking, what does it do? What's sure the point? A quick question: Is there such a thing as a single-edged sword? Uh, yes, yes, there is. Oh, see, I just think of that as a knife. Ah, well, like you know, just think about only sharpening one side of a blade. Yeah, and then you have to hack from that direction. Okay. Like a saber or something. Oh, right. Okay. Okay. Well, we all learned something. (laughs) 
Okay, so there are some dominant emotions that come up with inner healing. And these are the things that you really got to deal with if a person is struggling with them. So there's bitterness, Hmm. self-condemnation, false guilt. Hmm. I think that's interesting. Not just guilt, false guilt. Yeah. False shame, rejection, abandonment, hatred, and unforgiveness. So those all give the devil power. So weakening those emotions will help weaken the power of Satan over them, which mm-hmm. will make your exorcism all the more splendid. And Bob is clear to differentiate that, you know, sin is a separate thing. Yes, when Christ died at the cross and you accepted his gift, he forgave you of your sins. Yes, the sins are gone, but the damage from them still exists in your soul and need to be addressed. So that's what we're talking about here. Damage, not damnation. So maybe that's why he's saying false guilt and false shame, because at this point, your sins are forgiven. Oh, interesting. Maybe. I took it. That's interesting. I took it as like, these are all ways of looking at someone who needs deliverance, not because they've done wrong so much as because they are holding on to the wounds of something someone else has done to them. Oh, um, oh good point. Some other ways that some other way that they have felt victimized and they're um, feeling guilty for something that wasn't their fault to begin with. Exactly. That makes total sense. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I wonder it, it doesn't seem like he hardly ever deals with as we've mentioned before, with how to deal with like, okay, the villain in the room, though, the person who really feels they really did wrong and they're right. (laughs) What do we have for them? Exactly. We keep leaving out the role of the abuser. Somewhere out there, there are abusers. Right, right. And and most of the time, everybody is an amalgamation of both. Mm -hmm. I've certainly mistreated people, despite having been mistreated, you know, like that's Yep. No one's just an abuser or just a victim. That's good point. Way oversimplified. Good dichotomous distinction. <laughs> Thank you, Ross. Listen, I'd love to talk about this more, but really, can we just stop for a sec and talk about shoes? Particularly Rothy's. Can you tell me about Rothy's? Oh, I'm glad you brought that up because I didn't want to talk about any other shoes. I never do. <laughs> Other shoes. Because oh, I love my Rothy's. And listen, if you want to start 2021 off right with the newest Rothy styles like comfy shoes, brand new bags, and washable masks, well, this is the place for you because we agree. Mm-hmm. We love Rothy's. They're cute. They're adorable shoes. And they're made from recycled plastic water bottles. Yeah, that's so cool. Like they're well-made, they're comfortable, but... They're also environmentally friendly. That's right. They're made from recycled water bottles. But it's not just like wearing a bottle on your foot. It's nice and soft and pliable. And seriously, there's basically no break-in period, which is so great. If you've listened to this show for any length of time, you've heard about the two pairs of Rothy's that my wife has and loves. She wears them everywhere. Yeah, and I have a really cute pair as well, I'm sure you've all heard about. But oh man, they come in a range of styles And an ever-changing array of colors, prints, and patterns. And those 70 million bottles that have been repurposed have not just been repurposed into shoes, but also handbags and also face masks. Yeah, great time for face masks. Plus, Rothy's comes with free shipping and free returns on eligible items. So check out all of the amazing shoes, bags, and masks available right now at rothys.com slash oh no. That's rothys.com, R-O-T-H-Y-S dot com slash oh no. Style and sustainability meet to create your new favorites. Head to rothys.com slash oh no today. And while we're talking about clothing, Carrie, let me tell you about Third Love. Okay. 
Go ahead. Third Love is a bra company, and they okay, use the so measurements far. of millions of people to design bras with all-day comfort and support. Every Third Love bra is made with signature memory foam cups, no-slip straps, and a scratch-free band from cups AA to I, including half cups and bands 30 to 48. Oh my God, you put the words right in my mouth. That's exactly what I was going to say, that whole thing. What else can be said about Third Ugh, Love? I love my Third Love bras. I genuinely do. They're very light. They don't dig into your undercarriage. Mm. Can I say undercarriage for a boob? Or does undercarriage mean your butt? Well, anyway, they don't dig into your under boob. And they're great for like under a t-shirt especially, but you can wear them for any purpose. And oh, I got to say it. I'm sorry. Everyone who listens to the show every week, I'm sorry, but I got to say it. Those straps are so good. They have these straps. It Ross. bears repeating. Yes. They are, you know, folded like a fan. So they have a little bit of give and take, a little elasticity mm -hmm. that's way better than your average bra strap. So it stays up on your shoulder. If you have sloped shoulders, it's so good. They're all about getting the fit right, the size right. So if you're not sure about your size, take the Third Love Online Fit Finder quiz to find a style and size that fits your breast shape and your body. From modern stripes to lace that actually feels soft to their number one rated 24-7, trademark, classic t-shirt bra, check out all the exclusive styles at thirdlove.com. And they stand behind their products. If you don't love it, exchanges and returns are free. And Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone. So right now they're offering our listeners 20% off your first order. Oh, that's awesome. So go to thirdlove.com slash ohno, O-H-N-O, now to find your perfect fitting bra and get 20% off your first purchase. That's thirdlove.com slash ohno for 20% off today. But Ross, before you go back to school, I have a note mm -hmm. from your mom to bring your teacher. Here it is. Oh, okay. I'm handing it to you. All right. What is my mom saying? Oh, that's interesting. She's actually conveying somebody else's message. Oh. Apparently, it's for Riley from Jasmine. Oh, oh you know what? I'm sorry. I screwed up the envelopes. That's a Jumbotron. That makes more sense because uh, my mom doesn't write me notes for school anymore. Uh, it looks like Jasmine says, happy birthday, Riley, or close enough. This has been a rough time for us, but I am so proud of you and your ability to adapt. They say, you have never looked so vibrant and happy as you do now. Oh, you are an amazing writer, a wonderful partner, and a fantastic fiance. Aw, I can't wait to spend even more of the rest of our lives together. Yours forever. I love you. Oh my God. Aw. So beautiful. Riley, Jasmine is a keeper. Also, <laughs> <laughs> this is so funny because last week... One of their friends sent a Jumbotron to congratulate them on their engagement. Yeah, that was from Heather. So now we have this fun little unknowing triangle of Jumbotrons. Yeah, Riley, pick up the slack here. Riley is the only one who hasn't sent a Jumbotron. It's on them now to uh, <laughs> respond with a Jumbotron. No pressure, obviously. <laughs> we just, we just, we just. But Jasmine, boy, what a wonderful person. Okay, and oh, oh, you had something for me, I think. Uh, yeah, actually, do you see there's the bright flash of light behind you and the sky is opening up and a dove is floating down behind you. Oh, yeah, uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, let the that. dove land on your shoulder okay. and she will give you a scrolled up scroll that also has a Jumbotron. Oh, hello. You are my daughter in whom I am well pleased. Oh, thanks. Okay. Yeah, it's uh, one of those doves. Okay. Oh, taking this. Oh, it is covered in bird feces. Please hold. Oh, my and you God. Gotta, this is disgusting. Hold on. The clouds are rolling back so you can actually read the letter. There's too much light. Oh. Uh, 
this is awful. Oh no, did the oh. did the dove shit on it? Yeah, it's covered in feces. Oh. Covered. I'm sorry, I ordered the whole heavenly thing and I didn't know they would do that. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. It's okay. I mean, you send a bird. I'm going to leave negative feedback. <laughs> Okay. Well, oh, you know what? It's another Jumbotron. So this one is to Blake from Wyatt. And it says, Blake, I'm so glad to be celebrating another anniversary with you. A lot has happened in this last year, and I'm so glad to have been with you through all of it. Oh, we are so strong together, and I know we can make it through whatever the world decides to vomit up next. I love you. (laughs) Oh, what wonderful people listen to our show. And yeah, send each other really. Jumbotrons. It's, that's the most important thing. And if you want to do it, you can go to MaximumFun.org slash Jumbotron. And I see that their anniversary is on February 9th. So oh. happy anniversary. This should be just a couple days early. So excellent. Okay. Part three. Healing the fragmented soul, which yes. does sound like a Horcrux issue, but uh, no, this is Bob Larson's. Okay, theology. hold on. Let me Google this word you keep saying Horcrux. An <laughs> object formed by dark magic that is used by a wizard or witch in the Harry Potter series, created to achieve immortality by splitting a dark wizard's soul into separate pieces. Yeah. Oh, hell. Okay. So if I knew that you were going to vanquish me, maybe I would separate out, you know, like four or five different parts of my soul and attach some of them to like different objects so I could come back later. Whoa. Well, that's a very creative idea. And apparently it's exactly like reality. So uh, Bob says, this is a direct quote. Almost every day, the news sites carry a story about someone who committed a crime, perhaps even a mass murder, and the perpetrator is described later as being someone who would never do such a thing. All of this describes what popular culture knows as multiple personality disorder or dissociative identity disorder. What? Every single time someone murders someone and this surprises people, they have multiple personalities? Interesting. Yeah, I don't feel like Bob would stand by that if pressed because Bob's all for saying, well, sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. But yeah, he was introducing like all of these stories where people say, I never would have thought my neighbor could be the BTK killer, you know. Right. He seemed so nice. He was a member of his church. He was reliable. So anytime you see this kind of Jekyll and Hyde situation, Bob thinks, well, maybe we have a split personality or more appropriately now a dissociative identity. So these ideas have gone through many different forms uh, but the the basic idea is that you have additional personalities or different expressions of consciousness, active areas of consciousness within your head, and they're expressing themselves as different and sometimes competing personalities. And this has gone through many different revisions and versions, and DID is in the most current DSM, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, but... Even that is controversial. Yes, its inclusion is very controversial. The diagnosis is very controversial. And a lot of psychologists believe that it is a a misdiagnosis that's often given to people who actually have borderline personality or something like it, maybe bipolar in some cases. But uh, we're not experts on this. But the very least we can say is this is not something he should be presenting as fact. This is at the very least 
highly controversial. Yeah. And some of the most famous cases, the cases that really exploded this in our culture, like Sybil, were very thoroughly debunked. And mm. Debbie Nathan has a book about this called Sybil Exposed. And in her case, in the case of Shirley Mason, who we know as Sybil, she just straight out eventually said, I was I was making this up. Wow. Um, Okay. Now, but I think of her as the sort of Barney and Betty Hill of the situation, right? You have people now who really believe they were abducted by aliens because that explanation is out in the culture and it helps them put together something that's happened to them. Mm -hmm. And I think similarly now, this explanation is out in the culture and people who are having situations that just feel inexplicable to them. Okay, well, here is a narrative that helps you knit that together. Yeah. But the question of diagnosis should be, are we explaining this in such a way that helps you, right? Are we explaining this in such a way that you can, that the problem becomes workable? That's a good point. There's kind of the separated issue of whether the model of the brain and its its functioning is correct and the separate issue of whether it's helpful or not. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A lot of these DID practitioners have very, very, very questionable methods and people will get sort of stuck in this pattern where, you know, maybe they came in because they, well, here's a really common pathway um, they come in because they have trouble around sex in some way. Maybe mm. they're repulsed by sex or maybe they feel that they want it too much, whatever it is. And then this practitioner says, oh, you know, that's interesting. That's kind of common for kids who have been sexually abused. Did that happen to you? And the person says no. And they say, oh, okay. Well, sometimes people forget it, but maybe not. Okay. Now, next time they come back, oh, you know what? I just started to remember some of that mm. because the suggestion has planted it. Okay, so now you got that. And then with the repressed memory, the so-called repressed memory, now the practitioner is saying, oh, okay, very interesting. So, so those memories were kind of locked away. Is there someone here who can explain to me why that was locked away? Maybe, maybe not the Ross I usually talk to. Is there another? Is there oh. someone else here who can explain it? So now, you, and like, I'm the person with authority here, and you're going like, I don't know, she knows what she's talking about. Is there someone else here? Well, kind of in a way, when I'm mad, I turn into... I turn into bad Ross. Let's call him Rick. I'm Rick, you yeah. know, and like you build, yeah. you can, the, and I'm not saying this is what happens every time, but you can sort of create this problem in yourself that then just becomes an endless road of you creating new personalities and not understanding why you can't stop it. You can't get back to where you started. And all you came in with was like, I wish I wanted to have sex more. And now you're walking out with this new problem. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, so just to add some context around that, but as Carrie said, neither of us are professionals in this area, but you know, proceed with caution. But yeah, Bob, Bob also, I'll at least give him credit in this course and coming courses. He he does, uh, I'll say bend over backward, at least to put up a lot of slides and say verbally that he himself is also not a trained clinician, a physician in this regard. But, but he does cite his frequent reading and experience with these sorts of cases where he does sort of put himself as at least experienced, if not an expert per se. And straight up told us that he can do some things that psychologists can't. Right, like achieve actual lasting healing. That's yeah. a big deal. And and he did put a number on that. He said 75 to 80% of all cases of demonization, 
This is coming from Mr. Demon himself, Bob Lark, not Mr. Demon, but you know, Mr. <laughs> Exorcist himself, involve some form of DID, dissociative identity disorder behavior, oh, as an no. adjunct to the behavior. Oh, no. I think I missed that. That's terrible. 75 to 80. So that means when we when we go to those hotel events where a bunch of people get exercised... I mean, because a lot of times it'll be what, like 10, let's say 10 ish people. So, like, eight of those are that, supposed to be, that would be a people busy with night, a relatively yeah. uncommon diagnosis. Right. Hmm. So, yeah, he, he starts by defining a bunch of these terms. He says MPD is more than one state of emotional and psychological identity in a person's mind. And then he says a DID is now used to describe a person who has more than one state of consciousness actively operating internally. And then alters are alternate personalities, states of vocal and emotional expression separate from the core personality. Core, that's your main consciousness, which is interesting. How do you then define Mm -hmm. that? The one you like the most? I think it's usually the one who came in for therapy at the beginning. Okay. All right. We try to get you back. We undo everything we did here and bring you back to Ross. I mean, tell that to John Malkovich. uh, That's the integral state of being that identifies the main emotions and thoughts of the DID person. And then the term out That refers to thoughts and actions and to describe when a particular personality is in an expressive state. So kind of whoever comes up to the microphone, they are out. Mm -hmm. Oh, right, right, right. And then speaking now, please. And then switch. uh, That's when there's a change from one alter to another or from the core person's identity to another. So those are the terms he introduces so he can play around with them. If you want to see these played out by... I think believers in this. There is a show called The Many Sides of Jane, and I hesitate to recommend it because I had a lot of problems with it. But that said, mm. they definitely work with these terms, and um, they assume that this is a that their lead genuinely has DID, um, and so they'll use these terms and sort of show you how they play the, out. So and they're taking it from, seriously and trying to mm-hmm. present it in light of the latest understanding of that's right DID. Okay, interesting. Yeah. So he also brings up dissociation. I don't know if he ever made a really clear explanation of what he considers dissociation. Did you catch such a definition? I think just with contextual clues. Okay. Well, so he says that dissociation is also in the Bible, and it seems like he's using dissociation (sighs) here to mean um, switching from one personality to another. Oh, man. Um, This is, of all the weak scriptural support Bob has here, this is the weakest. I agree. This is what I was thinking of earlier in the recording. It may not make it into the final, but earlier in the recording, I I slipped up and said, oh, and the list doesn't make sense here. I was thinking of this list. Oh, wow. Okay. Because it stood out in my memory as like bonkers. Like he refers to James 1.8 and the phrase is, such a person is double-minded. Aha! Wow. They've described someone as double-minded. Therefore, we've made room for multiple personalities. Goodness. And- who is not double-minded? If you're not at least double-minded, you're single-minded. You're close-minded. Right. And, you know, he's just referring to someone who's thinking multiple ways. Yeah, uh, that's everybody. Yeah. And then, like, should be. Isaiah 61, he refers to, like, places long devastated, and it's, like, supposed to be some yeah. metaphorical allusion to the mind. Like, no. I'm yeah, not- the phrase is restore the places long devastated. And yeah, it's like, no. that can be applied to the emotions as well as a city or a nation. I wrote down, oh, come on. That is the correct response. So, <laughs> And he no. mentions there's numerous references to the broken heart. I'm like, what? We still say that, Bob. 
It means really sad. <laughs> yeah, not buying his scriptural support for this. Ugh. Uh, but also, by the way, here are some people from the Bible who may have had DID: King Saul, mm-hmm. Peter, because as you as you mentioned, you know, did a one eighty on Jesus, right? And Jesus is mine anyway. And then Judas, who really did do a 180 on Jesus, sure. famously, was like, you know, helped helped Jesus get killed. And the demoniac of Gadara. Yeah, who we've talked about before, the one who had all of his demons cast into the swine. Um, so there you have it. Who knew there was so much of this in the Bible? Also, I noticed this list has no women. Well, lucky women. Yeah, <laughs> we're fine. It's um, you boys. Yeah, there was a woman mentioned who was possessed by seven spirits, so I imagine mm. Bob would include her. You'd think. Interestingly, also DID is uh, predominantly a diagnosis given to women. So uh, interesting that interesting. we have mostly men. Yeah, but then here. again, like the ratio of men to women in the Bible is something like yeah. nine to one. I don't have any actual stats on that, which one could pull, but there's not too many women in the Bible. Yeah, not because they weren't there in society. They just, they weren't doing anything worth mentioning. <laughs> That's right. Um, <laughs> all right. So then he said he gets into things we should know about dissociative identity disorder and multiple personality. Oh, boy. Uh, oh boy. Here we go. I'm sure this is going to be very scientific and helpful. Sure, it's all true. I have a tattoo that says that. Okay. The first thing you need to know, multiple personality and dissociative identity disorder often have a positive purpose mm-hmm. to avoid a mental breakdown and provide a coping mechanism to handle unresolved trauma. This is the prevailing view for people who uh, think this disorder is organic and not not socially generated. They say that the the brain just says like, I would have a total collapse if I dealt with this trauma. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to develop a second Carrie. We'll call her Peggy. And Peggy's really good with at dealing with assholes. So she's going to have a second personality who's like, fuck you, guy who was mean to me. I hate you. And that that's just the brain protecting itself. I loved his example here. He said... I'm a computer person and, you know, I create folders within folders within folders, so many folders, and I may create a folder and I'll send it in a microchip off into cyberspace. (laughs) You what? And I'm thinking, wait, what? What? A microchip? And you send it into cyberspace? What? Is that a zip file, Bob? What are you doing? Oh, my God. It reminds me of Creed. On the office. <laughs> oh, Creed Patton, yeah. Yeah, when he he thinks that he has a blog, but it turns out that I think it's Jim just like created a or no, I think it's Oscar. It's like a text document that he a writes. Document for him on his computer that just says like blogthoughts.creedthoughts.blog.com. <laughs> He just types in it and he's like, oh, yeah, I finally got this out into the world. Oh, man. Um, I just thought it was hilarious is, you know, I'm a computer person. And then, you know, (laughs) essentially saying the Internet is made of tubes. Right, right. The idea was he sends this microchip off into cyberspace and it's waiting there until he wants to bring it back. And that's just like dissociative identity. Ah, okay. But with memory, with Mm. your traumatic memory. Right. And And he said it works just like that. And immediately I think, you know, that is always... The way of the easy way of describing the mind, which is just to compare it to the latest technology we're familiar mm. with. Um, so back in the day, people said, yeah, the, the the mind works a lot like a phone and you have like a phone bank operator and you call in and, mm. you know, or before that, you know, the, the mind is like a library and there's, you know, a person who goes and gets the books for you. So, you know, today, of course, the computer is the more apt analogy. 
If you're curious about how the mind and specifically memory work, uh, I recommend Julia Shaw's The Memory Illusion and Elizabeth Loftus's The Myth of Repressed Memory. Those are both excellent. Ah, very good. Um, Okay, so uh, point number two is that DID can be spontaneous. The coping response mm-hmm. to abuse and trauma can happen without any conscious effort. Right. So this is the this is the type we would uh, you know we would have thought was a hundred percent right like mm-hmm. the the kind that just arises in the person without anyone meaning to impose it on them. But he has a second kind, inductive DID. So yeah. this is where someone intentionally gives you DID and this we is don't like hear Manchurian me. candidate kind of shit, you know, we're like, exactly, exactly. We're training you later that when we say, you know, boxcar alpha five, and then we, we create the smell of sulfur, it will turn you into a super soldier. Right. And yeah, so he says this is mostly done by cults and it, it, it reminded me of, I mean, this this theory's been around for a long time, especially since the satanic panic, but um, there's something called Project Monarch, which is a conspiracy theory that the government does this to people. Right. And there are supposed survivors of them who have recovered their memories in the exact same process that we were describing before. And there's an interesting <laughs> history of MKUltra, which was a real government mm-hmm. program, and they were trying to do stuff exactly like this and it yes. it didn't work it mostly didn't work the stuff that worked was with drugs right yeah lsd and well a lot of lsd but he has some other you know psilocybin some other uh, uh materials yeah. as well but even when it you know works quote unquote it's not it's not controllable you can't like download microchips into people and send them off into cyberspace <laughs> Right. Um, what you can do, though, is influence people, which, you know, gets like hypnosis, for example, is a real wild card in this whole conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, because hypnosis is basically an agreement that, um, how about this? How about I do stuff and you agree that you will just do it? And then you say, you, the patient, say, yeah, okay. And then I tell you to do stuff and you do it. Mm-hmm. Like, that's just influence. That's not, it's not this like special altered state. It's just that most of us find it very uncomfortable to be told to do something and then not do it. And so there are parts of MK Ultra that are documented where they were using quote unquote hypnosis, but basically they were just telling people to do stuff and they did it. Right. Is that, is that a hit? I don't think so. I mean, anyway. it is if it achieves the aim that you want, which is to have someone accomplish something and mm-hmm. then ignore the legal ramifications mm, or mm-hmm. what have you, because they feel that play acting allows them to do that. Right, right, right. A Milgram experiment question. As well. All of this was highly unethical, usually without patient agreement or consent. So, okay. So those are the two ways you can get DID according to Bob. Um, the common signs of DID A, missing parts of one's past, particularly memories of childhood. Ross, what were you doing when you were nine? What was that like? Uh, Exactly uh, nine. uh, Not ten, not uh, eight. uh, What was it like? uh, What grade were you in even? Uh, fourth. Took you a second. Fifth, I think you fourth. might be wrong. Oh, shit. No, you uh, don't know. Uh, okay. It's missing. No, no. Another one is missing parts of one's present life. Maybe, uh, and he separates this out, or the inability to remember having said or done things. It's like, oh my God. That's everybody all the time. People, I experience this every single week. People tweet at me things I said on this show. Right. And then I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah, you have to give us context because by the time we've edited this and put it out, it may have been weeks ago, and Carrie nor I remember what we were saying about what. Yeah, I'll get tweets that are just like, Actually, Nylon 
is made of three different fabrics. And I'm like, I don't know what this is about. Okay. Um. <laughs> I like to think that if you put yourself in our shoes, you would experience the exact same thing if people were oh, yeah. responding immediately to conversations that you had three weeks ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And no, no offense taken, certainly, when people do this. No, it's, it's just, just uh, <laughs> that's why we scratch our heads and go, wait, what? <laughs> right, what am I looking at here? So yes, we know very well that you can forget things that happened minutes ago. Okay, also another common sign of DID, which Ross and I are discovering we have, the <laughs> inability to remember having said or done things. Okay. Yeah, I like. I feel like I see this with every husband and wife couple I ever hang out with. No, honey, you blah 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 blah. Oh, did I? Oh yeah, yeah. But I, I assume that we're referring to things of consequence. This creating yeah. problems. You know, I never thought about though, like how much trust that shows. That you really think like, oh, my spouse is like a reliable mm -hmm. historian of the stuff that I've said and isn't going to color it. Yeah, I mean, stuff that's I, I do honestly believe that a fair amount of my personal memory is externalized into the person of my wife and uh -huh. that she remembers many things that we did and in people we interacted with. And like she has this amazing ability, like anything around the house, I could pick it up and she'd be like, oh, so and so gave that to us three Christmases ago. And <laughs> and enough of that has borne out upon investigation that you're know, like, I, I trust that. I think it's actually accurate. Oh, um, nice. So it's just it's something I don't naturally track, but she does. Or she's very slowly grooming you to believe this and she's going to really unleash it in like 15 years. Really Maybe. Really start gaslighting you. Maybe. I'm going to get her a literal gaslight and just be like, do whatever you want with this. <laughs> 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 Fun experiment. But, you know, good, then good there's friends. the whole aspect of if she told me something like, oh, I remember the time that you ate the banana slug, I'd be like, no, I didn't. Hang on there. Yeah, that's a step too far. So it has. She, that's why she's got to work up to it. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Okay. So, one last common sign of DID childlike responses, such as fetal positions in times of stress. Yeah, and even like large collections of stuffed animals, things where you're kind of like really holding on to a childlike disposition. And I, I have heard that correlated before with borderline. We're definitely out of my depth on that one, but um, okay. but I have heard that. Um, okay, then. <laughs> okay, so I love this. The differences between demons and DID are very clear, he says. Oh, good. Okay, great. So this is going to be very easy to distinguish. <laughs> She's going to tell us exactly how to tell one from the other. Perfecto. So dissociation, uh, the purpose of that is to survive and maintain psychological cohesion, whereas with demonization, the purpose is to sabotage you and break your psychology apart. So, okay. It's going to be important to tell the difference, right? Uh -huh. Well, here are some common characteristics of people who are DID. Now, remember, Ross already told us most of the people who are possessed also have DID. So this is going to be confusing, but okay. Common characteristics. Intelligence. <laughs> okay, we're still on board. Because <laughs> it takes a uh, lot of brain power to handle all this, to run, run these different personalities in parallel. Okay. Yeah, okay. Creativity fine mm -hmm. see gender switching yeah creativity could almost be sort of a weakness there you know because was that creativity mm -hmm. contributing towards this mm -hmm. synthesis yeah totally gender um, switching yeah gender switching which okay if so in his thinking i'm imagining he's thinking if carrie has 16 alters some of them are going to be men so it's going to require her switching to male but 
we see exactly what can of worms this opens up. With, right, that uh, Bob would see someone who does not identify with their born assigned... Their sex, sex assigned at birth, yeah. Yeah, you know, that, that somehow then that points to some form of psychosis. Yeah, uh, I'm guessing that's where he'd go with that, but uh, I'll admit he doesn't say that exact thing here. Then uh, multicultural altars, he mentions, which made me wonder if he thinks Rachel Dolezal. I, right, I was this. thinking like there's not too many examples of this. Oh, man. But I can totally see like some white person getting up there and trying to do like a Jamaican accent or something and him being like, oh, yes, yes, I see one of your altars. Sure. And we've seen channelers do that. So, okay. Yeah. Also biologically distinct identities. So maybe an altar may have a disease or a medical condition that the core does not. This is interesting, too. I remember this being explained to me once as like, well, how would you explain that if these personalities weren't real? Like some of them will have cancer and some of them won't. And I said, well, do you mean like you take like a CAT scan when they don't and it's not there? They're like, well, we don't do that. So it's just basically one one alter professes to have cancer. That's not proof of anything. (laughs) Um, Age specific alters. So, you know. Suddenly you're a little girl or suddenly you're an old man. Interesting. Evil and dark altars. So, I mean, again, how am I going to tell that from a demon? Yeah, and Bob said that one of the rookie mistakes, I guess, that a lot of other practitioners of deliverance will do is that they'll encounter an altar and they'll treat it like a demon. And Bob says this is actually really dangerous because then you can just force that altar deeper and kind of further fragment or corrupt the soul of this individual. So this is very dangerous, but also is a risk with 85% of the people who come to my show. <laughs> what? what? You better give us very clear instructions about how to distinguish these two things. Yeah. Okay. Alter states have distinctive functions. So again, just to remind everybody, alter is a term for the the different personalities in the person with DID. Uh, so this theory goes. So amnesic insulation of trauma. That's what we've been talking about, storing that memory away in one of the personalities who can handle it. Handling emotions that the core can't. And functionality when the core is not able to cope. Yeah, in reference to the the whole functionality aspect of, you know, an alter who possesses knowledge or a subject that the core person isn't aware of, Bob referred to that as an academic alter. Oh, okay. Because he says often that that alter has a doctorate or a degree or speaks a language (laughs) that the core person doesn't. Uh Or maybe has a musical skill or creative skill. And for me, it reminded me of all these stories that come from cultures that believe in reincarnation. Uh, some of uh, yes. their common myths involve, you know, like finding a child who uh, remembers the war and being a pilot and getting shot down. And, oh, wow. We found the exact case and who he was or remembers uh, a language and speaks fluent Latin. And it seems like, you know, whenever those get really investigated, we find out that actually they weren't speaking Latin. They maybe heard a couple lines in a movie and they were able to say that or, you know. Right. The the story doesn't quite bear out. So I'd be really curious in any of these cases Bob is referring to just how much this actual knowledge could be probed. Yeah. Can you call up that expert and ask them something really specific about string theory? And yeah. see if they just start saying quantum a million times. And where were they studying at? Well, they were in their altered state. Like, did they use an online university when, you know, the core Michaela wasn't paying attention? Yeah, right. 
And if we called that university, would they know who you were? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because I will. All right. Dealing with altars requires special skills, says Bob. So here are them special skills. You need to understand the difference between integration and internal agreement. So integration is a term commonly used in this world to mean uh, when your multiple personalities are finally reintroduced into one personality. That's integration. And Bob is quick to say, that's for a professional therapist. I don't do that. You know, you shouldn't do that. Pass them off to someone who's professionally trained. Um, whereas internal agreement, I'm not sure if he gave a clear definition of it. I took that to mean like your alters might agree with one another on the facts, but that doesn't mean that. Yeah, he was calling it uh, also internal cooperation and saying that uh, as a deliverance minister, something that you can do is at least get these internal states to kind of agree with you. And, and like he was even saying that as long as you get 51% of the alters present to agree <laughs> with you. And to kind of work together towards a plan. It's like Congress. <laughs> That's what I thought. I immediately thought like, oh my goodness, it's like Congress. And he uh, he then referred to like a board meeting because I guess that's what comes to his mind when he thinks of a majority sure. rule. But yeah, like you can, without professional training, I guess, or at least your exorcist training, you can try to speak to all the altars present. And if you can get, you know, three out of five of them to work with you on this, I guess uh, too bad if it's like 50-50, then they can help you arrive at a consensus or make deliverance happen. Okay, so if you have this problem, make sure that you have an odd number of alters. Yeah, so if you have four or six, you know, add one or yeah. uh, kick one off the island. <laughs> right. Uh, also, I like the idea that when one of the altars comes forward and doesn't want to let you talk to the others, which we've definitely seen in the exorcisms, at least. I guess that would be the filibuster. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, okay, so he says altars must be distinguished from demonic entities. This is what I was talking about a couple episodes ago about how Bob will warn you that you need to be very thoughtful about something mm -hmm. and then not tell you how to be thoughtful about it. Right. And then sort of close the book like, well, I warned you. You yeah. had to be thoughtful about at it. At least well, when like you... When you come back to me later because you got sued, I can at least say, look, I told you. Exactly. I said you had to be careful. Well, in what way? This is a literal school, according to you. You're supposed to teach me the methods. What are they? I'm wondering now how altars fit into his whole hotel metaphor. Do we have multiple hotels or is an altar a different floor on your hotel? <laughs> Um, I think he actually does deal with this. I think all the altars are inside the soul. So I think the rooms of the hotel. Oh, interesting. They're rooms within a hotel. And so not the, all um, rooms are altars, but all altars are rooms. Correct. And a demon can then occupy one of those rooms, meaning one of those altars without occupying the others. I'm glad he didn't make any analogies saying that altars are a lot like an altar. Where, oh, God, you imagine. where you make a sacrifice. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, and then he would be alternating between altar and altar. Yes, I'm glad he didn't do that. So he says, demonic manipulation of altars can cause an individual to do what is contrary to the will and purpose of the core person. Remember how like a class ago he told us they can't do that? Yeah, and he, he tried to like reemphasize that. Remember, the devil can't make us do anything, but he can 
Uh, convince, cajole, influence. I think influence is maybe his term okay. of art here. The the altar to do something contrary to the core. So, I mean, maybe a better word is like, can convince you instead of cause you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, sort of like a Charles Manson. You know, the story was always, he didn't kill anyone directly, which now we know that's not even true. But, yeah. um, you know, he he convinced people to do it. And this is where Bob excuses the fact that he often exercises the same people multiple times. He says, you know, this is all complicated and sometimes multiple exorcisms are needed to complete the process. Uh, Don't rush it. Maybe there's going to be like a separate legal right in one of the altars and Mm. you've got to like find that and identify it. So all of this takes time. And it's wonderful that it takes time because talking to Bob Larson for an hour costs what is it four hundred dollars i think yeah three hundred and ninety five dollars for a virtual encounter right now so if you have to keep going back to him who boy yeah and speaking of which we've talked about how the price has gone down for signing up for this whole course Mm -hmm. right now on the website it says that if you sign up for the international school of exorcism you'll get a free online consultation with bob which I think it it sounds like it's going to be kind of one of his deliverance one-on-ones, which I feel like when I initially signed up for this. I think I was told I would get this also. Yeah, it's never happened. I've never had an online one-on-one with Bob. Yeah, maybe I can make it happen. Feeling a little stiffed. Um, By the way, on Bob's website, there is the most amazing photo of him doing a virtual encounter with someone. And it oh, is, yeah, you I sent, sent this that. to you. Yeah. So he has pulled up a stock image of a woman sitting on a couch looking just very calm, very sedate. And then him sitting in front of the screen, holding his ritual Romanum and shaking his hand at her. And he's got his mouth open and it's very posed. It's like, are you taking the pick? Take the pick. <laughs> um so anyway it's glorious we'll share it yeah it's and you can incredible. tell they use professional lighting for this particular shot but yeah the hmm. either they didn't properly light the stock image woman or they tried to comp her in afterwards but yeah i would i would have definitely boosted her image <laughs> yeah it looks dumb they didn't want her to be the focus yeah and the bible tangents her shoulder yeah whatever anyways yeah. Like, if you're going to stage it, stage it right. Yeah. But yeah, 395 bucks for a virtual encounter. Whew. Yeah, hey, we should really we should really ask for our virtual encounters. We should. Bob also lets us know that you can get more training from his DVDs on his website. He has DVDs, printed materials. He has a lot of stuff in further depth on this issue. So I went to the site trying to figure out what that was. I bought a number of MP3s to see if maybe this was in there, but there was no specific like Here's how you differentiate between uh, dissociative identity and a demon. There was nothing, nothing obvious. So there's no way to kind of come in as a student and say, "Ah, oh, I'm I'm wanting to expand this particular piece of knowledge. Therefore, I should download K." Yeah, I mean, they were all they all had titles, but for this specific thing that he was saying to look for more information mm-hmm. on, I couldn't tell which of those titles applied. Okay, so I ended up buying one that was called Inner Healing. Yeah, I bought like three or four that I thought, okay, this maybe it's in here, so I'll be listening to those. But it just gives you a sense of you know again how non-specific all this advice is, while simultaneously we're being told to be extremely careful. Ah, yeah, good it's, point. It's just 
it's really messy. And Bob has, you know, countless hours of written material and video material. And I think he just kind of assumes that you're going to buy all of it and weed through all of it and find somehow somewhere where he said the particular thing that's relevant to you. Right. Okay, so last thought from Bob. He says, a high percentage of people who seek exorcism are also dissociated. So you you said you heard 85% somewhere. Or 75 to 80. Okay, 75 to 80. So he goes on, so the deliverance minister must be acutely aware of the possibility that some form of soul fragmentation may intrude into the process and be prepared to face it confidently. Do you feel confident? You ready? No. Yeah, right? Me neither. Well... <laughs> Maybe in level three, course four, we really had to dig in hard on level three, course three, because it's uh, we didn't want to gloss over this stuff the way Bob is glossing over this stuff. It's, um, it's heavy stuff, yeah. We'll get into the psychological aspects of deliverance in our next episode. Excellent. Looking forward to it. Well, that's it for our show. Our theme music is by Brian Keith Dalton. This episode was edited by Ross Blotcher. Our administrative manager is Ian Kramer. You can support this and all our investigations by going to MaximumFun.org forward slash join. Oh, man. Thank you so much to everyone who makes this show possible. Also, you can support us by telling your friends, by sharing out on social media an episode that you really enjoyed or that you think that Marianne would also enjoy. She's been waiting. And you can leave us a positive review. Yeah, it doesn't take too much time. You you can let everybody else know that you find the show valuable, and that makes us look legit. Yeah, Shannon. Why don't you do that? And you can also follow us on social media. Heard of it? We are on Twitter at Ono oh Podcast, and we're on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash ONRAC. O-N-R-A-C. They destroyed democracy. <laughs> and remember. You're in denial about your past. You're in denial about the way the things that you've been through have affected you. And I want you to reach out. And take my hand tonight, and I want you to go there with me. I want you to go to that place with me. Something else you need to know about that place, it's a place that many of you have forgotten. You don't want to remember it. In fact, some of you are literally in denial. Some of you don't even know that place is there. It was so traumatic, it hurt so badly that you suffered amnesia denial or perhaps what we call dissociation or multiplicity. You've literally created another part of you, another what we call alter personality, another identity inside you to hold the memory of what happened back then because you don't want to remember it. Hey there, beautiful people. Did you hear that good, good news? Something about the baby Jesus? Mm, he's coming back. Or do you mean the fact <laughs> that Apple Podcasts has named Fanti one of the best shows of 2020? I mean, we already knew that we was hot stuff, but a little external validation never hurts, okay? Hosted by me, writer and journalist Jared Hill. And me, the ebony enchantress myself, <laughs> Travel Anderson. Fanti is your home for complex conversations about the gray areas in our lives, the people, places, and things we're huge fans of, but got some anti-feelings toward. You name it, we Fanti. Nobody's off limits. Check us out every Thursday on MaximumFun.org or wherever you get your Slayworthy audio.
I'm Jesse Thorne. On the next Bullseye, we've got the one and only Ted Danson. We'll talk about his new show, Mr. Mayor, about Cheers, and about the secret to success in comedy. I mean, I I feel like one of your signature comedic moves at this point uh, in your career is gazing. Uh, You do a lot of interesting gazing. (laughs) (laughs) I also love this. Gazing. I love that. And if I'm not, I'm going to start because that's great. That's Bullseye. Find it on MaximumFun.org and PR.org and wherever you get podcasts. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.